Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 252nd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Kyle Moore. Kyle's the founder of Quarry Hill Advisors, an RAA in St. Paul, Minnesota, that oversees $165 million of assets under management for 137 client households. What's unique about Kyle, though, is that while he's been able to generate very strong growth for his advisory firm in just the past five years since he launched in 2017, The path hasn't exactly been a linear straight line of growth as Kyle has navigated the plethora of all too common challenges and experiences, the fits and starts that as advisory firm owners face when building their practices in the early years. In this episode, we talk in depth about Kyle's three main channels for growth, including local search from Google, his personal network, and digital marketing through blogging. How one of Kyle's first clients ended up being a super referrer that gave Kyle's firm the big initial boost that he was able to compound as he continues to grow. And the specific steps that Kyle took to become findable online, including building backlinks from directories like the FPA, asking clients for Google reviews, and buying keyword-rich domain names that redirect back to his main website. We also talk about how Kyle's first entry-level job as an associate planner gave him the opportunity to learn as much as he could without the pressure to accumulate assets or sell products. How Kyle's desire to be his own boss led him to ultimately turn down an offer to be a lead planner with the advisor who first hired him and, and launch his own firm instead. The decision-making process that Kyle went through when he finally got to the point when he needed to make his first hire to help absorb the growth in his business. And be certain to listen to the end, where Kyle shares why, despite building a business that was growing well, he decided to onboard a partner who ultimately had a different but complementary skill set. The process that Kyle and his new partner went through in determining ownership and valuing their merging practices. And the benefits that Kyle has gained from participating in practice management coaching programs like Limitless Advisor along with some of the business owner pitfalls he's been able to avoid as a result. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Kyle Moore. Welcome, Kyle Moore, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Great to be here, Michael. I'm really looking forward to the discussion today and and just talking about what, what the growth journey looks like when you go out and start your own firm and and start building client base. and. And I think in particular, the the non-linearity of it. You had this this wonderful, I guess, like tweet storm, I'll call it, that you had, you had put out a couple of months ago talking about your journey over the over the first couple of years and and had talked a lot about the kind of the non-linearity of growth. You know, I think sometimes there's this vision if you hear of a firm that's like, you know, we've got this great client base with 50 clients and 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 we've been running four or five years. And it's like, oh, that's cool. It's like you you got basically like a client every month. And after four or five years, you had 50 clients. It's like, no, no, that wasn't it at all. We had like got no clients for six months. And then we got seven clients in a month and it completely drowned us. And I worked 82 hours. And then the next month we had none again. And I completely freaked out that we were going out of business. And it's like, oh yeah, it's doesn't really move in a straight line. Like it's really, it's really not linear at all as much as we, we, we wish it was. And like we draw it in a straight line when we make business plans and, and projections in our head. And so I, I I know you have just lived a lot of this nonlinearity firsthand. Been running the firm for four years, crossing over a hundred million dollars, which is just an amazing growth trajectory in 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 less than five years. But 
kind of a, as as noted al- already, it wasn't exactly a straight line in getting to a hundred million dollars in less than five years. Exactly. Yeah, it was feast and famine all kind of packed into these little sections. It, you know, each year has a different story to it. So, share with us a little bit of this journey of growing your firm. I think probably to start, maybe just paint a little bit of a picture for us of the firm as it exists today, just so you will sort of, we'll know where the story has landed, and then we can talk a little bit about what that what that journey was like on the, along the way in getting there. Sure. Well, today we've got five people in the firm. I just took on a partner who left one of the wirehouses to join me. We'd been in discussion about that for quite a while, and then we've hired two people recently. So now we're at five. Currently at about 165 million under management, mostly AUM fees. We have some retainer as well. And I think our total amount of clients is 137 households at this point. And it sounds like a portion of that was what you had created organically. A portion of that is what your partner brought in in leaving a wirehouse to join. Exactly. Yeah. And he's not his transition's not even fully complete yet. So we we started the transition basically at the beginning of June. And there's still some clients that are, you know, probably going to come over that just haven't yet. But yeah, he, he definitely had a client base over there that he brought with him. So just so we have context for so the, the growth journey you've had in the years coming up to this, like of the 137 households, 165 million under management, like about what, what portion of that was your growth, your journey before you, you had taken on a partner to come in? Well, right now I'm the lead advisor on 77 households and I believe it's about 108 million myself. And so whatever the difference between that is, is what, you know, what Bjorn brought over. And again, you know, his transition is not, not, not done yet. We're still not out of the woods yet. Understood. Understood. Partnerships and mergers and transitions take time, which I I'm, I'm suspect we're going to come back to in the conversation in a few minutes. Exactly. You know, you had launched back in 2017. Right. That's, you know, I mean, we're, we're under five years out for four and something years out. You're, you're sitting here at this number of more than a hundred million and with roughly 75, 77 clients at 108. So just where does $108 million come from in four years of hanging a shingle starting more or less from scratch? Oh man. You know, some places that are somewhat predictable, but others that, you know, you never really imagined it to start. It's basically been three different avenues. Um, you know, when I was at the, the prior firm I was at, um, I was working with a guy named Joe Pitzel, who's an unbelievable financial planner. You, I know you know him well, Michael. But we, you know, we we grew a lot at that firm in a short period of time. And, you know, I was kind of seeing that people started finding us through, you know, online channels. And so I thought, you know, when I left there, I thought, you know, that could be a potential source uh, of new clients. It, it just, it was a, a trend that was starting you know, if you, if I want to find a, a plumber or something like that, I'm generally going on Google and, and looking, you know, searching for one. So I thought if I can just become findable for people who are looking for what I'm doing, and if I can locate myself in a, you know, a saturated market where people are, are looking for what I'm doing and in close proximity to where they are, then I think this could work out, you know? And so local search is definitely one of the big ones. It took a little while to get recognized by Google and to get, you know, to start showing up in some of the search terms. But that's a big one. Another one, obviously, is personal network. I was pretty fortunate just to have a good personal network, some people who, uh, you know, clients who really have advocated for me and referred me to a lot of, you know, friends and family and whatnot. And then the last one was the more surprising one, and that's more content marketing. I started in 2017. I just, you know, I knew I needed a blog. I knew that was good for SEO. 
search engine optimization, you know, people who don't are familiar with the acronyms. So I, I started blogging and I, you know, didn't know what to write about. So I just started writing about client situations and things that I saw that were commonly misunderstood. And one of those was capital gains, you know, the way that capital gains tax and, and ordinary income tax interact in our tax code. I think it's a pretty commonly misunderstood thing, the way those two things interact. And so I wrote a blog post called, Can Capital Gains Push Me Into a Higher Tax Bracket? And for whatever reason, Google decided to pick that up and, you know, it, it started getting, you know, hundreds of views a month and thousands. At its peak, it was getting about 18,000 views a month. And then I started creating other blog posts that were linking to it to, you know, kind of get our target market kind of moving along through our page. And so, you know, that was more surprising and it just sort of worked out very well. But we, you know, started getting inquiries of people going through IPOs or dealing just with capital gain situations calling us and asking for help and or emailing us and you know wanting to schedule a time to talk about their situation driving primarily off just one blog post that went particularly particularly viral or i guess not really viral because it's not getting shared but like particularly google searchable and it just started driving activity exactly so you know i i, I linked another post to it called you know what do you do when your company goes ipo and so a lot of people you know stock compensation is is a niche of ours and so a lot of people who find that original posts end up going into the IPO posts and then contacting us. And it hasn't, you know, it's about 10, I would say 10 million of our AUM is from that, but it's, it's a disproportionate amount of people who've actually become clients through that channel compared to the amount of people who contact us. Uh, a lot of people are, you know, they think we're CPAs and are looking for just a, you know, some sort of tax advice only. And so they're not always the best fit for what we're doing, but it's created a huge amount of traffic. And it's something that I, you know, may try to capitalize on moving forward, but just, you know, haven't yet. So I want to understand a little bit more about each of these three channels. Come this, this like getting, getting findable locally, personal network, and then, and then content marketing. So let's, let's actually start on the, the personal network side. Cause I just feel like that's for most advisors, that's the most common way that we get started when we when we launch firms, right? Just we we go to our friends and family. Some firms out there actually require you bring the list of your friends and family in order to start with the firm. Right. I you know it's it's the it's the place we tend to naturally go, but for a lot of us, that's a difficult path to go because there just may or may not be a lot of opportunity there. It's for a lot of people really hard even just to bring up the conversation of talking to your friends and family and personal network, like now I'm a financial planner and I have my own firm and like, you've known me for a long time in a completely different context. And I have to convince you to be comfortable with having me manage your life savings. That's a tough transition. So how did like, where did you go in your personal network? How did you tackle personal network? What did you do to get people in your personal network comfortable working with you when they they may have known you from a prior life or way back when before you were financial advisor when they didn't think of you in those terms? That's a great question. It's, you know, I started interviewing with the Morgan Stanleys, Merrill Lynch's and whatnot. And I had a pretty attractive resume for people like them because I had already, you know, I had played professional golf for four years and I had raised money to do that. So they saw that, oh, this guy can go into his network and, and raise money. And so to them, they, I seemed like a good fit. But for me, I just didn't want to do that. You know, I, the whole raising money to play professional golf thing was very uncomfortable for me. And I couldn't imagine myself going to friends and family and trying to get them to become clients. So I didn't want to go that route. And I was very fortunate to have found a, a job at a firm where I could come in as like an apprentice. You know, I could just 
I didn't have any business development responsibility. I could learn how to be a financial planner, get my CFP, just learn how to, how to you know, serve clients the right way and do a great job for them. But I, I did find after I got my CFP, after I was, you know, I got probably the best experience you could get in the first, you know, four years of someone's career. I just got a lot more confident. You know, I, I got confident in the fact that I, you know, I could do a great job and a lot of other people out there underserved when it comes to, you know, whatever their advisor relationship is. And so I never, I mean, I never was the type of person who was going to my friends and family and trying to get them to become clients. It just sort of started happening naturally, especially once I started my firm. I was fortunate that, you know, I had one client who was, who was, who was an investor in my you know, professional golf, who was sort of a mentor to me. And he gave me a lot of advice when it came to, you know, he said, Hey, I don't know, you know, what this wealth management space looks like, but here's what it should look like. And I just, you know, I listened to him and ultimately, you know, he, he kind of really started to trust me and, you know, became a client. And then through people like that, they become advocates for you. And then they start referring other people or, you know, friends of yours, you know, I'm 36 now. So, you know, friends are starting to get to a point where they need help and, you know, their, their careers are taken off, but they've got young kids and it's just busy and they, you know, I'm the first person they think of. And so it just sort of started happening naturally. What I tell people is, you know, if you, if you're not the sleazy salesperson and people think you're smart and they trust you, and you have a good, you know, you, you know, a lot of people, then it's, it's just going to happen pretty naturally. And so, you know, we're finding that with, with Shelly, you know, who's been working with me for a year and a half now that's happening with her now. It's just, it, it just, it just sort of starts to happen in our, in our world. If you're a good person and reasonably sharp and people can kind of see that. Talk to me then about where you got started and how you got started. Cause you, you had said like you, you were talking to some of the, the wirehouse big firms. You didn't want to go there. You took, I think as you'd framed it, like an, an apprentice job with no business development. So what was that job and, and how did you find it? Good question. Well, I sort of, I, I realized, you know, I, I didn't want to go the, the pure wirehouse route where I just it was on my own and had to go bring in clients. I felt like I don't know what I'm doing. I can't imagine after three months of training that I'll be confident in actually handling someone's life savings. So I ended up interviewing with this company called Baird, who is sort of like a wirehouse model, but just a little bit better. And I got, you know, offered by them, but they didn't really have a team for me to work on. You know, we were set on moving back up to here to Minnesota, where my wife is from. And I, I just got into like full panic mode, really. I was like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I don't want to work for one of these places. I just want to learn. I don't want to have to go get clients. And I just started Googling people, emailing any advisor in the Twin Cities that would talk to me. And fortunately, there was one... I haven't, you know, ever, you know, met her since, since this email exchange, but she just pointed me to the Financial Planning Association and their career day. And so it was through the FPA career day here that I ended up getting an interview with, you know, a company called Intelligent Financial Strategies at the time. Was Joe, Joe Pitzel was there and they, you know, ultimately ended up hiring me. And so we, we moved up and I was able to learn from them. Uh, you know, it was two partners at the time. They ended up splitting ways about nine months into me working there. And so, you know, I had, you know, had sort of a career crossroads right away, but it was fortunate enough to go with Joe to start, you know, the new RIA with his brother's CPA firm. And so I just, you know, I had, I had four years of really, you know, hands-on great experience with Joe going from that one firm to kind of just starting a new one with his brothers and taking some of the clients with him. So, you know, when it comes to experience, I was, I didn't have business development responsibilities and I just, it was, you know, as hands-on as it could have been. So I got to see everything. So what was the job when it started? I, I mean, I'm assuming they weren't literally hiring for like financial planning apprentice, although maybe they were. What was the gig when you 
signed up when you took it originally? It was just called associate financial planner. So it was an entry level job. I think they were mostly interviewing, you know, new college graduates. I was, you know, 27 at the time of interviewing and 28 once I started. So I was, you know, a couple of years older than probably everybody else they were interviewing, but it was definitely a, you know, an entry level financial planning position. Okay. And just for entry level salary. Yes. I think my salary was 40 grand when I started. So how, how do you even process that? Cause I, I'm sure, you know, some of the big firms are probably throwing similar or higher numbers at you as just like starting draws to go get clients and build your book of business. What, what took you in the direction of like, nope, going to take a salary, like flat salary and, and go that route instead? Well, I, I think if there's one thing that I did well in my career, it was always making decisions based on what would get me to my end goal the quickest rather than get me paid the most. I wanted to get the best experience. And so there was another firm, you know, a bigger multifamily office here that I also got a job offer from that was you know, it, you know, at the time, I think it was like 53,000 was the offer for them. So, you know, I was having, we had our first child. Trivial the difference. Yeah, yeah. It, it felt like a big difference for me, you know, especially having a kid coming. But, you know, one of my mentors just said, hey, don't worry about the money, you know, just go to where you think you're going to learn the most. And that was just excellent advice. I mean, I, I could not have gone to a better place, I don't think. And so even though it was less money, it was, it, to me, it was a launching pad. And so what was it about the role that made it, made this lower salary role so much more appealing as like, this is where I'm going to get to learn? Well, I could tell that the partners were, they were both young guys. They'd taken over a retiring advisor's practice and then they had grown it a bunch since then. And I could just tell that they were really good. You know, it was, you, you go in, I didn't know anything, but I could tell that they knew what they were doing and that they knew how to do great financial planning their investment process, I could tell it was in alignment with what I was kind of looking for as well. And so I thought, you know, I really want to learn from these guys. And I think this is my best opportunity to learn as much as I can. And so what, you know, even, you know, the first job I didn't have, you know, I wasn't in any client meetings or anything. It was a lot of behind the scenes stuff. But then, you know, once the firm split apart and I went with Joe, then I was in every client meeting. And that became very attractive to me to, you know, to go with Joe and be in every single client meeting and see kind of the master at work, you know, and, and glean as much as I could from, from just being there. And so what was the journey of the role? I mean, did it, did it change and evolve over, to, over time? Obviously, you're not still there now, but just was it changing and evolving? You didn't like where it went. You just did it for a while and then said, okay, now I'm ready to do my own thing. Like, how did it, how did it morph? Yeah. So, I mean, I started... We grew, I think, I mean, this was a crazy growth story. You know, Joe brought, I think, maybe only 18 million under management. I had said, he, he felt it wasn't his choice to, you know, kind of split the firm apart. And so he felt very badly about it and about, you know, the position it put me in. But they were great. They were looking for other jobs for me and trying to help me get my next step. But because it just, you know, didn't seem like either of them could keep me. Fortunately, at that time, you know, my parents and then one of my mentors became clients. And that was about, you know, 15,000 of revenue or so. I said to Joe, because I, I could just tell, you know, I knew Joe was an all-star. And so I was like, I want to learn from this guy. Wherever he goes, I want to go. And so I said, hey, you know, pay me 25 grand. My wife's a nurse. She could pick up, you know, a shift and we can make it work. I'll take the, you know, we got these 15,000 of revenue that would come with us. You know, your, your risk is pretty low and you got me coming with you. I, I just want to, you know, I want to be with you. I want to learn from you. And so I think that, you know, that brought him, it put him in a tough spot because he didn't want to pay me that. You know, they ended up paying me 
you know, similar to what I was making before, but that kind of, I think, got him to talk to his brothers about, you know, having me come aboard. And I think they were grateful they did because we did grow really fast and they needed me. I became, you know, I was a full-on associate. I was in every client meeting. I was doing all the, we didn't have an admin at the time. So I was doing all the paperwork, all of the uh, meeting prep and follow-up, pretty much had my hand in, in, in most things and just was really a support to Joe. You know, Joe was growing the firm. I was allowing him to do that or doing the best I could to allow him to do that. And then we got to a point where, you know, Joe couldn't really, you know, he was maxed out. You know, he couldn't really, we grew to over a hundred million in, you know, that period of time, you know, probably less than three years. I think we grew to over a hundred million and we were there celebrating at a bar. I think we kind of all were out just, just celebrating the milestone. And Joe had said to me, you know, the next hundred million is yours, Kyle. You're going to be lead advisor on the next hundred million. And I was ready. I was ready to kind of step into that role too. But for whatever reason, I think maybe because I'm a little bit just wired differently, I just didn't, it didn't excite me the way that sort of growing the firm excited me uh, in those, you know, those sort of first couple of years, just having, you know, a steady stream of clients in someone else's business. I mean, I would have, you know, he probably would have made me a partner down the road and whatnot, but it just didn't excite me in the same way. And I, and at the same time, XY planning was, was, you know, really taking off. I had a couple of guys in my mastermind group that had started their own firms and that just, it just excited me. You know, it, it was something that I loved listening to, you know, the problems they were facing. And I kind of wanted to have those problems too, as crazy as that sounds. And so I think we, you know, we got to a point where I ultimately told Joe, I wanted to start my own firm. And I think it was, uh, it was definitely a pretty selfish decision, honestly, because I had a great situation. Joe had invested a lot in me. We had a great relationship and I still, you know, he was the best boss I could have had, but I still wasn't happy. So it was definitely a situation that I, don't, I think is not very common. Even, you know, Bjorn, who's my you know now partner, I remember a phone conversation with him and he said to me, I would really think twice about doing this, Kyle. I think you're probably going to starve and you're leaving like an ideal situation that pretty much any associate advisor would love to have. And he really cautioned me about making that leap. And for whatever reason, I just, you know, I wasn't going to be happy unless I did it. And so I ended up, I ended up making the leap. So just what was the itch you had to scratch? I mean, just, as you said, like you're, you're in a firm that added a hundred million in like three years who turned to you and said, next hundred millions, your clients, you know, by most advisors perspectives, it's like the advisor equivalent of, of being made. And you were like, yeah, I think I'm going to go start over from zero again. I don't, I mean, I wish I could tell you, I mean, there, there were some things, you know, we were, we were a, a wealth management firm, financial planning, investment management within a CPA firm. There were some things that bothered me about the CPA culture. Uh, I think they've since kind of sorted that out, but at the time, you know, we were kind of just flying by the seat of our pants and, you know, Joe's brothers were partners in the firm, but they were not really directly involved in it. And so I, for whatever reason, what I said to Joe when I left was, you know, you're the best boss I could have imagined. And I'm still not happy. You know, I, I still kind of want to be my own boss, you know? So it, it just shows you it's, it wasn't anything he did. It was just sort of the way I'm wired. And I think it's the way Joe's wired too. Cause when we did all the personality assessments and we kind of came back the same on everything, you know, on our Colby's and on the discs, you know, it was, we were pretty similar in a lot of the ways. And I think, you know, it just made sense. Oh, you know, Kyle wants to be Joe. So they don't really need two Joe's in that, in that firm. So it just felt to me like I want to kind of do what Joe did, you know, and, and do it for myself. It wasn't a rational decision by any, by any means. It was definitely a kind of an individual quirk that I had, but it was something that I, I followed. 
so like what was the what was the launch plan what was the transition plan to i mean just like how do you actually take this like do this transition of okay so but seriously like i've been working in joe's firm and have all these clients that i'm i'm involved with and doing all this stuff there and now i'm going to go out on my own like just is that a is that a cold break were there any clients that came with you how did you hang your shingle like just what did what did this transition look like when you actually make the mental decision of like okay i'm walking away from this well it was it was sort of a, it was a little bit of a mess because i wasn't planning on doing it it would the, the sort of impetus to it was you know at, becoming a lead advisor i now had to sign an employment agreement I probably should have signed this employment agreement a long time ago, but you know, when I first started with the firm, but it was a thing, Joe was like, Oh, I need to get this done. You know? And it was a very fair agreement, but it was just, it was a type of thing where, you know, if you sign it, you're, it makes things a lot harder to leave. If you ever, if you ever do leave, you know, in hindsight, there was nothing unfair about the agreement, but it was just, do I really want to sign this? And so I was not ready to leave. It was not something I was planning on doing, but it sort of put me in a, in a place where I had to really decide and I ultimately decided to leave. And so Joe was incredibly gracious and, you know, he, he made the transition easy for me. I think about five or six clients maybe came with me and he made it very easy for all that to happen. And it was as amicable as it could be with, you know, I'm sure, you know, he didn't really express this, but I'm sure I hurt his feelings quite a bit, you know, and, and, and making, making that happen. But I think he probably saw himself in me in, in a lot of ways. And he, you know, would have asked him, you know, asked himself, how would I have wanted this to happen if I were in Kyle's shoes? And that's how he handled it. So when you went on your own, like, did, did any clients in revenue come with you or get to come with you? Or was this just a completely cold start for you? So there were, I think it was about 32,000 of revenue that came with me. That was, you know, five or six clients. Uh, or six or seven, something like that, a small amount of clients. But it was, it was a, you know, if you look at the XYPN benchmarks, I essentially was starting in year two, you know, of all the people who start, you know, cold with no clients, it might take them a year to get to 30,000 of revenue or so. So I fortunately had a little bit to start. And then I got a couple of good clients right away. Once I started the firm, because, you know, the clients that did come with me wanted me to succeed. <laughs> and so I think they, you know, didn't like the idea of, uh, of having a financial planner that would, you know, whose business would collapse. And so they, ended up referring a couple people to me that, you know, right away, I grew very quickly over that first 12 months where I think the forward looking revenue after the first 12 months was probably 200,000 or so. I don't know the exact number, but it was definitely, it was definitely up in that range. And so it wasn't a complete cold break, but uh, we definitely, you know, grew, grew pretty quickly to start. So talk to us a little bit more about that. Just where did 170,000 of new revenue come from in the first year? I mean, just that's a, that's a very big, fast growth number. <laughs> well, the, the one client who he was one of my golf investors, a couple of his buddies, you know, got together and they all, they're kind of unique. They, they've managed their own money. They basically have run their own hedge fund for many years and made quite a bit of money doing that. Dodd-Frank had really kind of closed, it ruined their trading strategy or clo closed some of the inefficiencies in the market that they <laughs> otherwise were able to exploit for a while. Uh-huh. And so right at the time that I was starting, they were winding down their business. And so they needed a lot of planning. And so I helped quite, and I you know, had no clients. So I was able to help quite a bit in a lot of their planning. So you know, one of them had you know, a million dollars with me that became 3 million and then it became 10 million. And then you know, they referred a couple, couple people to me that were just in their network who were retiring. And I really love retirement transition planning. I had helped them a lot 
even on some you know project basis, not necessarily managing money. But I was able to demonstrate to them that, hey, I'm not just kind of a, a newbie anymore. I actually know what I'm doing and I'm, I'm saving you a lot of money here and how you're going to structure some of these withdrawals. And so I think I was able to prove myself pretty early and that invited a, a bit of referrals. So I got you know, a client with $5 million and then another client with $6 million on that first year. And you know, the AUM billing rate was not, you know, it was, you know, it's 50 basis points on those people is what I was charging or I still am charging on those people. And so very good clients right away, all of a sudden I'm, you know, making a lot more money than what I was prior, even though I just, you know, kind of started this new business and wasn't sure it was going to work out. And so that, that gave me a lot of confidence and it gave me the ability to, you know, kind of double down and reinvest in the firm and continue to grow. So I, I guess getting back to that earlier comment, just around the, the non-linearity that, I mean, it sounds like at the end of the day, just one key client, one key connection ended out being sort of a, a super referral channel that you know brought a number of other large clients who brought big dollars. They in turn referred some people downstream from theirs, and and just it sounds like a big chunk of that revenue ultimately traces back to like one one key relationship that was able to drive a big chunk of growth. Exactly. I tell that to everybody. I say there's no firm that grows quickly that doesn't have someone like that. I mean, at Joe, you know, at Pitzel Financial, we we had some clients at at Target, you know, Target headquarters and the corporate people who, you know, were huge fans of Joe and he did amazing work for them and they just referred so many people to us. And you, you just don't grow quickly unless you have a person. There's there's always one or two clients who are raving fans of yours and they're very well respected by the people around them. And so their recommendation makes it very easy for these other people, you know, so they don't have to do the research themselves. And uh, that's, you know, th this one client, that's what he is for me. He's very well respected. People take, you know, they say, okay, if you're using this guy, you know, one phone call, I'm hiring you, you know, as you, I, they don't need any convincing. And so I, I saw that at the prior firm, you know, that I was at as well. Sometimes it takes a little while to find that person. For me, we basically have two, two clients like that now. And if it weren't for, the first one, you know, things would have happened a lot more slowly for me. And I was, I was very fortunate, you know, then from there, you know, they, there hasn't been a referral from them in quite a while now, but it's, you know, it gave me the, the base that I needed to reinvest in other ways and other ways to grow. And it's worked out pretty well. Very cool. So, so I get now the, the dynamic that one of the big growth channels for you was, was kind of this personal network, friends and family colleagues realm and, and, you know, where, where, a key relationship or two can can quickly amplify itself. So talk to us now about the the second channel, I guess that you mentioned, which was getting clients online, I think as you would put it, like becoming findable because there should be people in my dense metropolitan area who were looking for me. So I'll just make myself findable so they can find their way to me. Which I, I feel like is something a lot of advisors say. I mean, I I I almost feel like it's it's kind of the the dream for a lot of advisors. Like I'll just hang my shingle, and then people will come find me and give me money. <laughs> Usually doesn't work out that way for most people, unfortunately. So I just I'd love to hear more of of like what did you do in trying to become findable online that that has actually contributed to outcomes and client growth in this journey. Ooh, well, it it took a little while, but. I used 20 over 10 for our website. They had an SEO package. I think it, at the time it was, you know, a thousand dollars or something like that, where they just give you some basic education, help you optimize your site a bit. And then you obviously have to do a bunch of work too. I mean, they can't go get backlinks for you. And so 
but I knew, okay, if I, if I block, if I have regular solid content on this site, if I get, you know, positive backlinks through whether it's getting quoted in the media or, you know, just being, you know, if, if somebody is going to list my firm on their website, I'm paying for it. You know, it's like fee only network or, or FPA or, you know, whatever it is, if I'm getting no other value from any of these organizations, at least my firm is linked to from their website, even like yellow pages, things like that. So I want as many sites that have high domain authority to link to me. Interesting. So even just joining organizations and platforms like, like fee only network, just to literally get the, the link back in their directory. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can, you can look at your site in Google Analytics. You can see who's linking to you, who's not. And if you have, you know, solid websites who link to either your blogs or, or your website, then that's going to, Google's going to look at your website differently. You know, one thing that we did recently, and, and by the way, nothing I do is ever original. It's all, I'm, if, I, if I have one talent, it's that I can find the people who are doing things well and have things figured out and I can copy them pretty well. <laughs> so, you know, guys like Taylor Schulte, I mean, Taylor's just unbelievable when it comes to modern marketing techniques and whatnot. And he loves it. And I've, you know, been fortunate enough to just glean a bunch of things from Taylor. And so I, you know, I listen to what these people have to say and then I, and then I implement it and see what works and what doesn't. One thing that was Taylor's idea was, you know, sending clients a link to rate you on Google. And, you know, you obviously have to send it to every single client. There are some clients issues with that. But if you do it in a compliant way, then, you know, anybody who interacts with you can rate you on Google. That does a lot for your firm if you have positive ratings. But then you also, you know, you invite negative ones too. And we have one negative one on there from someone who, you know, actually, you know, it's a whole longer story, but it was about six months of just, you know, very stressful experience where, they rated us negatively on all these different places. It's someone who we decided not to work with and they just kind of went on a, a mission to try to destroy us. So, <laughs> so there's good and bad with that too. You kind of have to, you're taking a little bit of a risk and putting yourself out there. But there's things like that, that, you know, Google really likes. And so if someone's searching for a financial advisor near me, you know, you're going to show up if you have a lot of those, you know, analytics. And so just that was it, like made a website, got backlinks and people show up on your website with a, bunch of dollars to work with you? Pretty much. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you obviously have to have a great website with good messaging. You know, the industry awards and getting quoted in the media really help just in terms of establishing credibility. So that's something I also worked pretty hard on was, hey, I haven't even been a CFP that long. I look like I'm 12 years old. You know, I need, I need, I need whatever I can to establish some sort of credibility. And then, you know, that creates the pipeline. Again, I'm in St. Paul, Minnesota. There is pretty high awareness of financial planning, I would say, in the Twin Cities. You know, NPR, Minnesota Public Radio, talks about financial planning quite a bit. So there's a pretty high awareness here. If I were trying to replicate this and I were in, you know, rural Minnesota or in, you know, Timbuktu, Nebraska, it's a lot harder. You know, you can't, it's not going to work as well. You have to have another strategy. But I, you know, I located my office in a specific place that I thought would be most central to you know anybody who is looking for what I'm doing. So there was a lot of different things, a lot of small things I would I would say, small decisions that I made to to optimize all of those things and I, I think they all pretty much kind of there's a Lollapalooza effect where they all work together to create a nice pipeline. And so just what are they searching for that they find you? I want someone to find me if they just type in financial advisor St. Paul, financial planner St. Paul, fiduciary advisor Twin Cities, you know, all those types of terms. And even I have different domains that I've purchased that will link to, to our site. Anybody who's searching anything related to help me with my money, I want them to find our site. And then on the site, you know, we obviously have 
enough descriptors on there so that the right people are the ones booking calls with us. And we get quite a few people who you know, may not be the exact right fit, but we'll you know, refer them to any, any number of advisors that we think are a good fit or the XY Planning Network or something like that. So this is for you very heavily built around just literally like local geography-based search. This isn't necessarily like optimizing you know, financial planners for golfers or something, given your, your golfing background. This is very geographically based, like financial planner St. Paul is the kind of stuff that you're trying to optimize around. Yeah, I think, you know, that that's only going to work for so long, too. I mean, it's not going to be forever that we're going to show up on the first page of Google for those search terms. Some of the bigger firms are probably going to just squash us. I know I know Taylor Schulte is dealing with, he, he wrote about in his uh, newsletter, he's dealing with a negative SEO campaign on his site, which people create all these, you know, random pages, have spammy, you know, backlinks to his site that he can't control. And, you know, there's, you know, the bigger firms are going to hire people to try to squash us. And I'm not optimistic that, that we're always going to have the ability to, you know, show up where we show up and search. So there's going to be other avenues. I'm looking at LinkedIn right now of, you know, different marketing strategies that hopefully we can home and by the time that happens. So it's local search is definitely, you know, it's worked. The timing was very good for us, but I don't know. I don't know what the future holds in that, you know, and I do think more niche based marketing is going to be the way forward. And our primary niches are retirees and people with stock compensation. And so I think we'll probably start doubling down on that. Unfortunately, in the Twin Cities, also, we have a lot of executives, a lot of Fortune 500 companies. So there's a decent market for that. And LinkedIn might be the best, you know, avenue for us to, to explore that rather than, you know, search terms for people with stock compensation through Google. So th- those are all the things that I'm thinking about. And I'm the one that's primarily in charge of, of marketing here. I'm sure as well, though. I mean, to me, just financial planner St. Paul, to me, ultimately, like that is a niche. It's just a local geography-based niche, right? You can have a niche of all the people who want retirement planning advice within 10 miles of my office. Like truly, I mean, that's a, I think that's a, a, a valid niche unto itself. A lot of firms don't necessarily do much to build or optimize towards that, though, the way I think you you have ended out doing just with with really optimizing around local SEO. So at least if if someone really is in the St. Paul area and wants a financial planner in the St. Paul area, like you actually will come up at the top of the Google search. Cause at the end of the day, most people won't click further than two to three down on the list. So you're 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 at the top of that list or you're not. Right. We've seen this indirectly in in some of our advisor marketing research as well, just through the Kitsis platform, that the number one ROI that we found for marketing strategies, just of what advisors have reported that actually worked and the revenue they got relative to the the spend they put into it was SEO. I mean, it was SEO, primarily local SEO, like just actually being well-optimized so that at least if someone searches for a financial advisor and the name of your town, you actually come up as a financial <laughs> advisor in your town. Right. Here's what I'll say about that. In the same way that I have these clients who you know are now passive investors, but they spent their whole career exploiting an inefficiency in the market for, you know, that happened for 20 years. And then eventually that inefficiency closed. I would say right now, this is local SEO is sort of an inefficiency in the financial advisory space. I don't know how long Mm. it's going to last. You know, I don't know how long we're going to be able to show up there. I do think that it's going to become way, you know, it's harder now than it was four years ago when I started. And so the more people that are trying to do it, the more competitive it's going to become and the harder it's going to be. So, you know, for someone who's starting down the local SEO track right now, it's probably still a good time to do it. But 
it's it's just going to be harder and harder. Well, just you know, the for better or worse, there are usually more than three advisors that exist in any particular town or zip code. So, yeah, at, at the point that everybody air quotes that everybody is actually paying attention to their local SEO, that space is going to get crowded. Consumers really still only pick on the first few, and so at a minimum, it it, it may take a lot more to get to the top of those rankings, to stay at the top of those rankings in the future as just as competition for local search heats up a little bit more. But I, you know, I, I suspect that will be quite regionally varying for a long time, or just some, some advisors happen to be in towns and areas that either don't have a lot of competition or just don't have a lot of competition that understands the internet and the opportunities there and, and maybe uh, tapped and other towns, you may find there's already a bunch of advisors that have done this and really heavily optimized, and it's going to be hard to break into the rankings with them or against them. Exactly. So one one channel for this is personal network. One channel for this is building around local SEO. And then the third that you've said is is content marketing, which it sounds like is is the one you're envisioning more focus on in the future. Friends and family have been good, but a little bit more passive. It finds you local SEO has worked well, but may or may not sustain the same way in the future. I think you had said like focusing more into executives, the stock options is is more likely where you double down for marketing going forward. So, so talk to us more about just that, that strategy, that approach. It's tough. I mean, I do think that content marketing is a great way to go. That the more focused your niche is, the better. You know, like Adam Schmela. I mean, he's works with not just he started out working with white coats, uh, you know, that basically spanned from dentists to optometrists to doctors. Now he's niched down to optometrists and not only optometrists, but those who are, you know, going through a private equity acquisition. So, you know, the more focused you can be, I think the better with content marketing. And so it's something we're trying to figure out. I mean, I honestly I kind of got obviously put in the work of writing the blog post, but I got a little lucky, you know, in terms of what that created for us, but it opened up my eyes to the possibilities of what you can do with, you know, establishing some sort of credibility in a specific area publicly. So talk to us overall about just how this growth path has come together in, in practice. You, know, you, you, you know, you started with, with a little bit of revenue in, in, breaking away from Joe and, and hang your own shingle. As, as you said, you, were, you at least kind of got to start as though you were in year two instead of year one. You got a, a, a big initial jump in the first year because of the, you know, some of the personal connections network and, and having one or two folks kind of turn into super referrers that, that drove a lot of activity. How did these channels play out over the, over the subsequent couple of years though? Like where, when did the growth come and where was the growth coming from? Well, you know, to start was that a lot of it was personal network and then local search. And, you know, the first year was was gangbusters. You know, I really grew a lot in that first year. So 2017 and then beginning of 2018, pretty heavy growth in both of those areas. And then at the end of 2018, I hired a client service associate to kind of support me with all the administrative type stuff. And all of a sudden, you know, I hired this person. It was a, you know, I think a fifty thousand dollars salary or so. And but you know, all of a sudden stopped growing. <laughs> and and it was, you know, trying to figure out, okay, I just hired this person. And, and when you start out too, as a business owner, you know, you get to a point where you're like, oh man, like you know, revenue minus expenses, there's two hundred grand there. I can now I'm making two hundred thousand dollars. I can't believe it. But then you got to hire somebody. And then all in, you know, you need bigger office space. You need to buy a computer. You need to buy you know, a desk, you need to buy every, you need to buy everything, you know? And then on top of that, you have to pay this person 
and you have to, you know, provide benefits and whatnot too. Or at least I did. And so now all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm not making 200,000. I'm making 115,000, you know, it's in, and you. Well, it's going to say, what, where was your revenue when you decided to make the first hire? Because that's, that's the hardest hire for basically anyone and everyone. It just, it, it's when you're, it's when your income takes the biggest step back in your, and your headcount goes up by 100% because you, you go from one to two. Like, what was the threshold for you when you actually decided to pull the trigger on that? Well, if you remember at the end of 2018, we had about a 20% decline in the markets. And so I think before I hired her, forward looking revenue was about 300,000. And then, but you know, my, my expenses are always much higher than I think average people, you know, average kind of XY planning network member is uh, just because I, you know, have had a pretty nice office, wanted to look very, you know, present presentable and have credibility and whatnot. And so I probably spend a lot more money than most people do in, in order to do that. But then, you know, the markets went down by 20%. You know, our, our total firm portfolio, if you look at the asset allocation, it's pretty aggressive. It's like, you know, 80% stock. So we felt, you know, I felt that pretty hardcore there right after hiring her. And then, you know, we started growing a bit more again in 28, or sorry, 2019. But that hire wasn't working out for me. It was some trust issues there, you know, like, you know, making mistakes and then covering it up and whatnot. And ultimately nine months later, that's an awful thing too. You go from, you know, here I'm an associate planner. Then I start my own firm without having been a lead advisor before. And now all of a sudden I got to, you know, I hire somebody and I'm a manager and I have to tell this person that they no longer have a job with me, you know, and that, you know, talk about, I used to sleep great. You know, I used to have, (laughs) I used to have full nights of sleep, never had trouble sleeping, you know, but then becoming a business owner, now there's all these reasons to just have, a, you know, my mind spinning when I'm, my head hits the pillow. And that was one of them, you know, having to, having to let her go was super hard for me, but I knew it had to happen. And, but then fortunately, you know, shortly after that, I hired Shelly. She, she was introduced to me by somebody else and she's a financial planner. She was just getting her, she had her CFP back in the nineties, but then it laughed. You see, she stayed home with her, with her daughters for a while. And then she got it back just, you know, right as she joined me. And right after Shelly joined, joined me, you know, we had the pandemic also. And so 2020 was very slow as well. I mean, we had revenue went way down, obviously. And then nobody, nobody was trying, was asking to work with us. You know, there was no new client inquiries hardly at all in, in 2020. So, you know, here we go, you know, the pandemic happens all of a sudden, you know, I'm not, I'm not drawing any income out of the business for, for that whole quarter in the summertime from June, you know, June to October, just cause, you know, we gotta, we gotta make sure everything is, is okay. So we were living off our home equity line for a little bit. Ouch. And that's like, we're already three plus years in and 50 plus million into the business and still eating that level of a pullback. Yes. Yep. Exactly. I mean, I wanted to make sure there was some money in the business. I had kind of, you know, I had made the mistake early on of just pulling out too much money and not leaving enough in there. And so for a while, just because of the way hiring worked out and some of those dips in revenue, even though I was taking on some clients, like revenue was not going up. And, and we were experiencing some declines. And then every quarter, it seemed like I was, I didn't have any money left in the business. And so from there on, you know, I decided, okay, you know, I had to get Shelly, you know, Shelly was undercompensated too. I had to get her, you know, paid what she deserved. Fortunately, at the end of 2020, really around September, October, it was just like the floodgates opened. And all of a sudden, everybody who is either dissatisfied with their advisor through the pandemic or doing things themselves and realizing, hey, we really need some help. Just tons of inquiries. 
you know, we start taking them, taking on people and then just, it just doesn't, it just doesn't relent, you know? So we took on 25 new clients in a six month period from October to, to March. And then all of a sudden the markets are recovering, you know, and then some, and lo and behold, boom, we hit hundred million. It's it happened very quickly and suddenly just the combination of the market's growth and all of these new clients that we were taking aboard. Where did business start coming from when the floodgates reopened? I mean, was this referrals started getting underway? Your like blog posts started firing up? Just did local SEO suddenly start catching fire and everyone was searching for financial planner St. Paul again? Honestly, it was it was all three, and it's still all three. I mean, we're still we have a wait list now. Bjorn is basically handling all new client inquiries at this point because Shelly and I just have so many new people that that it's hard for us to, you know, really give everybody the attention they deserve. And we want to make sure we don't, we don't sacrifice on that, but it, you know, existing clients are referring people, you know, it was high IPO season. So all these people that are finding us through our, our blog are, are reaching out and they have, you know, boom, they got, they've got 3 million of, of, you know, ISOs that they need to figure out what to do with. And then local search as well. That's been huge. So it's, it's really been all three that have you know got us to where we are right now. So what do you attribute to just the, the, the like near zero slowdown and then the sudden explosive turnaround? Like just what happened? Why did it swing so much? I think it was the pandemic. Honestly, I, I, I don't know. Obviously when things are unstable, people don't want to make decisions with their money. They just, they kind of just get into protective mode and sit there and, and wait things out to see how things are going to play out. So we had very few people reach out to us in the midst of, of the you know, scary parts of the pandemic. But I think that was a triggering event for a lot of people to say, okay, you know, either our advisor is you know, giving us terrible advice or, hey, I really don't want to be the one responsible for this for our family. Like the, number, the numbers are getting too big. And so we've had a number of people like that that have never worked with an advisor before and all of a sudden realize, hey, we, we really need some help here. I'm wondering again, just as you hit these waypoints along in the in the journey like i guess first like what was the threshold when you decided like i gotta actually hire an administrative associate and make a fifty thousand dollar hire just was that a a revenue threshold a number of clients of like just oh my gosh i'm working too many hours like what got you the point of saying i'm ready to make this investment for me i had already you know at the prior firm i spent a lot of time doing the administrative work and I got, you know, pretty good at it in some ways. I mean, I'm not detail-oriented enough to not make mistakes in there, but I did enough and I knew how to do it, but I didn't want to do it, you know? And I didn't want to have to do that here as well. It was just taking time away from the higher, you know, higher revenue, higher value activities that I was, that I should have been doing. So I think it wasn't really a revenue number. It was more, hey, how much time is this all to take? And I, I want to get this off my plate. I think there's some, you know, some people decide not to hire and just kind of stay. They want to do everything for a smaller amount of clients. I would rather, I would rather only do the things that I like to do. And so that was sort of always a goal of mine. You know, that's why I wanted to have a team of three. That was sort of my intermediate goal was, you know, hundred clients, hundred million under management team of three where I'm the lead. I have a, an associate who does a lot of the prep and follow-up and, and a lot of client service administrative person who does all of the paperwork and, and, you know, other client service type things. And I'm doing strategy mainly strategy, you know, when it comes to financial planning and investing. And so that's kind of what I always envisioned my role to be. And I needed to hire people to do that. I needed to, I needed to get those things off my plate once those things were becoming too, you know, too burdensome for me. 
And do you recall just where where was, I guess, either client counter or revenue at that point? Just how how big of a financial hit was it for you when you were when you got to the point of saying, I'm going to I'm going to pull the trigger on this? I don't remember exactly, but it was maybe I mean, maybe 250,000 of revenue to something somewhere around there. But I remember I was working with Arlene DeMoss at the time, who's, you know, the, a coach through XY Planning Network. And I remember saying to her saying, you know, well, what if, you know, what if I, what if I hire this person and I stop growing? And she just kind of quipped back to me, well, what if you don't hire this person and you keep growing? <laughs> and, and so that was the dilemma. It didn't, you know, I kind of had capped our, our lifestyle in a way that it didn't feel like a huge financial hit because that money wasn't really mine yet, you know? I guess the forward-looking numbers were lower than what I had thought they would be, but it wasn't really like I had to take a financial hit myself. You know, you know what I mean? Not sure I follow. How how so? Let's say let's say the forward-looking numbers were two hundred thousand would be my share of of revenue minus expenses. I might have looked at that number and been like, oh man, that's that'll be so great. But then all of a sudden realizing I need to hire, well now it, it ended up being a much lower number because I was hiring this person. It wasn't like I was living off two hundred and then all of a sudden I had to take this huge step back. Okay, because because you're because you're still in growth mode, so you can get a like. All right, last year I made 150. This year I'm growing so much I could be up to 250, but I haven't gotten the 250 yet because I haven't actually lived it. I'm just doing my forward projections. So if I do my forward projections and I reinvest and hire down and hire more staff, and instead of instead of clearing 250, I'll 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 get 175 or 200 after these expenses. Like it's still more than I made last year. <laughs> Exactly. Like I'll still be I'll still be equal or higher I'm, because I'm growing enough to to cover this. I won't be up as much, but I'm not I'm not I don't actually go backwards at this point. Exactly. Yeah, I think what people maybe who who don't run a firm maybe not don't understand is what shows up on your tax return is not your actual income. <laughs> and so I, my biggest tax return year, you know, I started the firm in 2017, so very you know low taxable income that year. 2018 was my highest taxable income year 2019 and 2020 were both you know you know fairly lower than than that that 2018 year 2021 I, it might be a bit higher this year but you know we've pretty much held constant with our i mean we did buy a bigger house but other than that we've pretty much been spending the same amount of money but moving forward it should be you know it should be higher and it's not growing as much just cuz you're in that phase where every time you you grow and add revenue. You have to you have to hire a team in order to support it, which means they end up gobbling up most of the revenue growth. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. And but I knew I had to do that because I wanted to grow to a certain point. So you, you you can't you have to sacrifice income to grow if you want to grow your team. You know you can't just pull everything out and all the you know the, the new clients and the new revenue that comes in is going to get allocated towards somebody's salary or some you know or towards you know right now Bjorn and I are you know we're looking at new office space that's going to be pretty expensive. Then we have to furnish that office space that's going to be very expensive. There's a lot of other things that as you grow that you have to be, you know, you have to pay for. And so it's not cut and dry, you know, between just revenue min- minus expenses anymore. And so do you ever get to a point of just saying like, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing a lot of growth and work for my income to not actually go up. Why do I keep doing this? That's exactly where we're at right now. You know, I would say with Bjorn joining me, we're, we're kind of in that small giant phase that you talk about on, in one of your posts. I forget when you, mm-hmm. when you wrote that. But we don't have a ton of households. We've got very high you know, revenue per household, and we're going to be very profitable moving forward. And we probably, with our team of five, we probably can handle another 50 households, I think, with our service model. So you know, do we, do we keep hiring and, and reinvest that profit in, in growing the firm? And obviously, the, 
profit margin on any subsequent clients with new advisor teams is going to be lower than what it is right now, you know, where we're actually the people servicing and, and leading the, the relationships. So we're in kind of a quandary where, you know, we're not going to probably make any more money than what we're making, what we're going to be making moving forward. But, you know, do we want to, you know, hire more people, provide career tracks and build the enterprise value of, you know, of our firm? So then talk to us a little bit more about where Bjorn, your new partner, comes into this equation. You just sounds like you were you were already on a good growth path for what you were doing. You were doing some of the hiring, you were adding the capacity that you that you needed. So just where did the decision to partner come from? Like how did how did this come about? Bjorn and I had been in a mastermind group of St. Paul financial planners for you know, basically since I moved here, you know, I think 2014 maybe is when we started that. So we'd known each other. We'd known each other for a long time. So we, and we lived down the street from each other. He was working at Ameriprise at the time, and then he moved to RBC. And we just became good friends and became, you know, kind of unofficial partners, I would say. You know, whenever here I was on my own, he was kind of, you know, I think there was some grass is greener type thing watching me do what I was doing. For, for him, but he would, you know, he would be my first call when I had a, an issue that I was dealing with or needed some advice and vice versa. So we sort of had this unofficial partnership. We saw things the same way. We invest the same way, same investment philosophy, same financial planning philosophy. We were reading all the same things and just kind of running parallel practices. And eventually he called me and just said, Kyle, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go independent. And I can start my RAA right down the street from you, do the exact same thing as you, and, you know, just kind of run parallel still. But I want you to consider partnering with me. I want you to consider, you know, what it might look like if I leave and join you. And honestly, it was a little bit like, ugh, like, I, I didn't want to tell him no, <laughs> even though, like, my first initial thought was no, because I just felt like, you know, I got a good thing going. I don't know that. Yeah. You know, I, I need to be convinced of this, right? I wasn't looking for a partner. But over a lot of our talks, and it, you know, for, for me, if there was a person that I would partner with, it was going to be Bjorn. You know, he's someone I completely trust. I think very highly of him. I knew him very well. Like, you know, there, there was going to be no surprises. And you know, on top of that, we have the same exact philosophy on how everything works. But still, it's like, you know, this is my baby and I, I'd have to relinquish some control. And I had to really think about whether we, we were going to be better together or apart. So I kind of had some stipulations, you know, hey, we need, to, we need to figure out what you're good at, what you like to do, and what I'm good at and what I like to do. And if there's any overlap there, then it might not work. You know, you have to be good at things that I'm not good at, and you have to like to do those things also. And, you know, it was over the course of about a year and a half that we just had all these conversations every single week. So even, even if you agree on everything, <laughs> there's still so many things to work through, but we it just, you know, it became, I got more and more excited about it. And it was, you know, sharing some of these responsibilities with somebody, but also not just anybody, but someone who I really trust and someone who is very skilled in ways that I wasn't and I'm not and likes to do things that I don't like to do. And so that it became a no brainer really. Well, and I'm, I'm struck by the way that you, just the way that you framed that, that it was, you know, let, let's make the list of all the things that you're good at and make the list of all the things that I'm good at. And, and, Ideally, we want these lists to not overlap, to exactly. be to be separate and distinct. Because just I, I I think there's a tendency for a lot of us, even and perhaps especially when we're thinking about partnering, of just like finding someone else who's who's just like us and kind of mirrors us and can amplify us. But to me, you're you're 
you're sort of highlighting the the opposite like it's it's a i know it's it's an opposite to tract kind of formula it's the it's not who can extend and do more of what i'm doing it's who's the opposite and can do all the other things that i don't want to do which usually means i do things that they don't want to do and that's that's a great complementary fit exactly otherwise we were going to be in these situations where neither of us wanted to do the thing that needs to get done and you know we you get burned out you know doing things that you don't want to do you got to you you kind of have to like to do what what you're going to do every day in order to not get burned out and so you know for me i i love the marketing side i love you know writing and client communication and things like that so even you know recently bjorn got a tough email from somebody who was you know maybe not convinced of coming he wrote out an email and he gave me the draft i rewrote it and he was he was so great he was like oh my gosh your you know your email was just so much so much better than mine like i'm so i didn't change a thing i just sent it right to him and then there's things on my side where it's you know we have our you know we use orion and eclipse for rebalancing and i can get it to 80% but i just cannot i mean i'll fall asleep trying to trying to get it to 100% you know to do all the things we want it to do whereas he just dives right in and he's got all these suggestions right away and it's just you know it's just a huge relief for me that he's he's skilled in that way and he can take all that stuff off my plate all these things in our firm that you know we're really subpar clients wouldn't know it but internally i just didn't feel great about him but he's able to come in and right away you know make everything right so just how do you get comfortable with you've done all this stuff as the sole driver for so long and now suddenly you have to share in all these decisions <laughs> <laughs> there there is some challenge to it i mean i think i think i've had somewhat of a healthy detachment from some of these things, you know, and, you know, if he comes in and he says, Hey, this, the way you're doing this sucks, you got to do this differently. I'm able to, to really listen and try to understand. And in some, some cases, uh, most cases he's right. And in other cases I might fight back a little bit just because I do think it's a bet, like the way I've been doing it is better and not, you know, not because I'm, you know, tied to it just because it's the way I like to do it. You know, we really value excellence and we want to do things the best possible way. So I think because we have that shared value, both of us have pretty thick skin when it comes to, you know, disagreeing with each other or, you know, just kind of hashing it out. So we'll, we'll kind of just banter for a bit about things and neither of us are offended and neither of us take things personally. It's just, we're both trying to do the best thing. And, and I, you know, if I had less respect for him, it would be different, but I respect his opinion, you know, a hundred percent. And I think that, you know, all the changes that we have made when he's come over have been for, you know, for the benefit, but it is, you know, in some level it is. It is, there is some challenge there where it's now all of a sudden I have to get used to the fact that I'm sharing in decisions with somebody and I can't just do whatever I want anymore, you know? So there, there's some challenge to that, but I mean, it's all been, it's all been positive in my, in my mind. It really hasn't been an issue at all. So just what, what was it at the end of the day that led you to decide to, to say like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pull the trigger. I think I actually do want to be a partnership now in you know, just have a partner and be a, a two owner business instead of a one owner business? Well, looking back, you know, I played, I played golf competitively for a long time, which is an individual sport, but I also played a lot of team sports growing up. And what I found about myself was that I loved the individual aspect of golf, but I had the most fun when I was on a team and you know, in college, I played on the college golf team, high school golf team. I just loved, you know, the team aspect of that as well. And, you, you know, golf was kind of unique where you had both of those things. So I found that, you know, it was just going to, one thing Bjorn said that was, you know, I was pushing back on him in some of our early talks. I said, hey, I think you, you probably could make more money 
you know, just kind of starting your own RIA and, you know, going straight over from, from RBC, you know, why would you, you know, why do you want to do this? And he said, I just think it'll be a lot more fun. You know, I think it'd be a lot more fun to be together and, and to, than to be by myself. And I agree with that. It is a lot more, it's already, you know, we've, we've had really, I mean, there's been a lot of challenges and that we've had to face in him coming over and joining us, but it's been a lot of fun. (laughs) It's been, you know, it's really nice to, to just have someone to share in those duties with rather than kind of being all on your shoulders. Well, I know there is just kind of a loneliness aspect for being, right, being an advisory firm founder, being an, being an owner in general. One of the most striking things, you know, we did a, a study on advisor well-being late last year. And one of the things that we found was that advisors leading teams report greater loneliness than advisors who are solo. Absolutely. I Which is see that. kind of a striking thing, right? I mean, the, the classic definition of loneliness is not having anyone else around. So you would expect the advisors who have teams feel less lonely because they have teams. But there's, you know, there's this isolating effect that comes from being the business owner, having all the decisions on your shoulders. You know, the teams are teams of people that you manage, which means you have to manage them, which creates a certain level of distance that, you know, there's, you know, particularly when you've got a team, you know, many or most of your challenges in your business relates to managing people and managing teams, which means the one people you can't talk to you about it are the teammates because <laughs> they, they may be the problem or the challenge that you're facing, which means you end up with no one to talk to. And and so we saw this phenomenon that just the, the, the loneliest advisors are the ones that are managing teams. And, and, you know, the way around that is, is either, you know, you, you, you partner. So you actually have another person at that owner level that you can have those conversations with and break the loneliness, or you find, you know, a study group, a mastermind group, or, or join an organization, you join a membership association, uh, a FPA or a, or a NAPFA kind of group just to, just to find that community. I mean, we see that even within XYPN people form their own study groups within, within the organization, just trying to stem a little bit of that loneliness. And, and, and I think some do both, like they, they take on partners and they join study groups. Exactly. Yeah, I could totally see that. I mean, I, I didn't have a huge, you know, it was just myself and Shelly before Bjorn joined us and we hired two more people. And so I didn't have a big team before that, but I could definitely see how that, you know, the dynamics at play. I mean, you think about, you know, in, in the office show, Michael Scott, you know, he was always trying to be one of the, one of the team members, but he was, you know, he was the boss of the office and, you know, never really could get included, you know? And so it's, there is a dynamic there that's, you know, it creates some sort of isolation. So what was the biggest challenge for you then in, in going through the merger? I mean, we painted this lovely picture. Like we, we were so wonderfully aligned on everything that we had conversations and came together. I'm sure there are still speed bumps that come up along the way. So like, what were the biggest challenges in figuring this out and making it work? Oh gosh. I mean, I guess before the launch, I mean, we had to get, we had to get on the same page about, you know, how we were going to get, you know, how ownership was going to be distributed. And when we first started talking about these things, my practice was smaller than Bjorn's. And then we basically doubled in size over this past year and Bjorn grew too. But, you know, now all of a sudden, you know, it would have been me paying Bjorn money to get to equal partnership. And now it's him, him writing me a check. And so we had, you know, it was kind of funny. I was doing some valuation stuff. I was kind of valuing my practice at a higher multiple than his because it's already, you know, an RIA. So instead of using, you know, two times revenue, I would say 2.25 and Bjorn was at two times revenue. Well, even if you just increase the multiple like slightly like that, it'd be, you get some pretty drastic mm-hmm. differences in numbers. 
so we had a call with FP Transitions and I said, you know, hey, let's just have a call with these people and see what they say, thinking that they probably were going to support my point of view and do evaluation for us. But they were really nice and they, but they basically said, hey, you guys just need to go get a beer and hash this out yourselves. <laughs> Kyle, the way you're thinking about it, this is wrong. Bjorn, you're right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, after the call, I just texted Bjorn. I said, I bet, I bet you love that. I bet you love that call, didn't you? All right. So, but, but like, so what, what changed? Like, what were they saying that you were thinking wrong about it? Cause you know, classically like RAs get some higher valuations than firms at broker dealers is been out there for a while. That's not exactly a new, a, a new thing. So like what, what were they telling you you weren't thinking about right that you needed to rethink? Well, he basically said, you know, you don't have any enterprise value right now. You're just one advisor. You know, if you're going to come in and get purchased by a bigger firm, they're just paying you for the AUM revenue. You know, they're not paying for your brand or anything like that. And so your revenue, you know, is basically should be valued at the same multiple as Bjorn's. But, you know, you did start an RIA and you have a bunch of expenses that went into that. And so basically, you know, you got to figure out what's the, you know, put a number on some of the goodwill and put a number on what it took you to start the RIA and then, you know, just have a number and then, and value the practices the same, the same multiple. And so that's what we ended up doing. We just came up with a number that we both felt good about. But for me, it was, you know, there's definitely the endowment effect that I was, you know, uh-huh. being, I was being, uh, you know, but I made my baby. So it has to be more valuable. Exactly. Exactly. And I think I had some argument. I mean, the, the pipeline that I've been able to build through those three marketing channels we talked about is pretty good, you know, and that's, you know, I was like, that's worth something, but how do you value that? You know? And again, like I would have to hire another advisor to really tap that. And if I were, you know, more intent on just maximizing my, my business worth, I would have hired some, another lead advisor and, you know, I would just take the profit on, on, you know, those clients rather than hiring another, you're bringing on another partner and sharing the equity. So we just kind of came up with something that we both felt good about and it'll be, you know, kind of a five-year payout type of, type of situation based on, you know, what the values are at the end of, at the end of September. So this valuation at the end ended up being like a multiple of revenue, which you guys use the same valuation, but then you had like a, just a, a separate kicker value on the firm on your end for the dollars you'd put into building some of what you built already. Yeah. So we use two times revenue for the revenue, you know, differential between our respective practices and then just a hundred thousand as a number for here's what Kyle did. And, and here's what I'm going to pay you for that. Okay. You know, the, the, the payment for buying into the additional layer of infrastructure that you did build because you built independently as an RIA, which means you actually did have to create some of that infrastructure. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm, I'm struck as well, just you're talking about this in terms of, of revenue differential. So it sounds like the the path or the end goal was you wanted to be, you wanted to treat each other as 50-50 partners, but you weren't bringing books that were 50-50 equal size. So you're basically, whoever has the smaller firm is paying the larger firm to equalize the two so that you can be 50-50 going forward, even though you weren't 50-50 coming in. Exactly. Yeah. I think, you know, we had kicked around a lot of different things about how to structure that. I mean, I was intent on you know, I want to view this as a firm, you know, not as individual siloed practices. And I think that was something Bjorn had to maybe adapt to a little bit in terms of how he was thinking about things, because he comes from, you know, more of the broker dealer type world. And so, you know, we had to come up with valuations and wanted to get to 50-50 partner. That that was kind of the goal. I I said to him, you know, I I don't really 
Like I'm not a details person. I don't want to think about, you know, expenses, who's paying for what and who's splitting what. And, you know, like this needs to be a partnership and it needs to be something that we're not haggling over things like that and with it, with unequal, you know, representation and ownership. And so the easiest way to do it, and maybe, I don't know, somebody else might've done it differently, but the easiest way to do it is just try to get to 50, 50. And then if we grow and continue to grow, you know, we'll have ability to add other partners and, and whatnot as well. But yeah, that's just, that's the way we decided to do it. Not, not to say it's the right way. Interesting. So, so where does it go from here? We're in a really good spot and we have a lot of decisions to make and it all comes back to, well, how big are we going to grow? You know, looking for office space, how much space do we need? Looking, you know, we, we need to sign at least a five-year lease. So we need to look out for five years. If we want to provide career tracks for the people who are with us right now and you know, is, is Shelly going to move into more of a lead role or do we need to hire a lead advisor if we keep growing? We have all these decisions we have to make and we're not super clear yet on what we want to do. And so we're still taking on new clients. Bjorn's primarily the, the lead advisor on those clients, but we're, we're really trying to figure that out. I mean, fortunately, we've both managed the business very well to the point where, you know, we have a lot of profit that we can reinvest and we can, you know, or moving forward, we will. And then that, that might entail hiring. And then we got to figure out who that's going to be. And then we got to figure out marketing strategies to, you know, to, to continue to grow and then provide career tracks for people. I remember at the XYPN Accelerate, I don't know if you remember that, Michael, it was, I think it was 2018 or 2019, you know, you guys talked about even at XYPN, you know, if you didn't keep growing, people were going to leave, right? If, if there's no opportunities for people, then they're going to leave. And in order to provide opportunities, the business has to grow. Yeah, it's it's that's one of the crossroads that you get to just once you once you decide to grow a firm beyond yourself and you start bringing other people on, you you there are a lot of firms out there that grow to a really a really nice in revenue level and a really nice income level and just just kind of hang out there like I make good money, I don't really need to complicate my life anymore and 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 create a bunch of turmoil and change. I'm good here. Enjoy how I spend my time taking good dollars out. I'll be able to retire. I'm going to go focus some of my energies in in other parts of my life of, you know, kids or hobbies or family or whatever else. But once you start taking on team members who have their own goals and career aspirations, they need a place to move up and there's no place to move up if you're not growing. So they're only going to move out. And if you want to hold on to them, just, yeah, you get to a point where your only choice is you, you have to keep growing. It's, it's why I've always said that that capacity crossroads where you hit your capacity and have to decide if you're going to grow the firm bond yourself is, is so important because it, it really sucks if you accidentally get on that treadmill and didn't realize you were doing it and didn't mean to. Exactly. I mean, I, I want to be intentional. We are at a scary crossroads because we love, I mean, our team of five is just unbelievable. We have, we have a really awesome team right now. Every person I want to be able to provide them the career check that they want. And we can at this point, you know, we've got, we're profitable enough that even if we don't grow, we can provide everybody a career track uh, that they want to be on. The issue is moving forward. You know, it's, if we want to continue to grow, then that means additional hires and it means additional responsibility for us. And it's uh, it, it is scary, you know, it's because you're you're basically you're signing up for something that it's a it's a train that you can't really easily stop. You got to keep on moving that train if you're going to continue to grow. Otherwise, you're going to hire wonderful people who just say, hey, there's not much room for me here. I'm going to go. I'm going to go somewhere else. So, what surprised you the most about building your own advisory firm? Oh man, there was. I remember getting a beer with Joe after having, you know, maybe about a year and a half into it. And I just told him, I was like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I just said, I'm sorry. Like, I didn't realize all the things you were going through. I didn't realize, 
you know, all the decisions you had to make and what it was like to even have, you know, an employee who you, who you were responsible for and had to develop and, and train and, and, you know, provide income to, you know, a salary to. And so there were just a lot of those responsibilities. I think you don't realize what it feels like until you're on the other side. It's sort of like, you know, having kids or getting married, you know, it's, you don't realize what it's like until you actually do it. So the hard thing, I think you captured it really well in your, what was it? The advisor, well, the wellness survey that you, that you did, what was that called? Wellness? Yeah. Advisor well-being. Well-being. Yeah. You know, I think you hit the nail on the head a lot with the advisory or the, the independent firm owners. You know, there's just so many things you got compliance, you've got software, you've got, and everything's changing all the time. There's never a steady state. You're always changing something. There's always something that doesn't work very well that you need to work through, but there's no great options. You know, whether it's a CRM or a, or a rebalancing software. And if you care about efficiency, there's always going to be things that, that bother you. And, you know, HR stuff too. It's like, you know, what's coming up with a career path and, and you know, objective points for people to meet and that tying, you know, income to that. And, and it's something that, you know, people who join you are not going to join you unless they feel like there's a, there's a vision there and they can see that path moving forward. So it's sort of never ending. There's all there, there's there's no shortage of things to do. You have to get really used to tasks being left undone. You know, it's not like you shut your laptop at the end of the day and you've done all your work that you needed to do. There's there's always something to do. Kind of have to get used to that. So, what was the low point for you on the journey then? Probably March of 2020. You know, I, I care about uh, investment philosophy a lot. I you know I'm the I'm the type of person I, I've heard before that a financial planning meeting goes well if you'd never talk about investments. And I think that's a, I think that's hogwash. I think you have to talk about investments every time you meet with a client. Even if you only use a one fund portfolio, you have to talk about investments because you have to reaffirm to the client why their strategy is best for them and why it makes sense and aligns with their goals and you know why it's the most prudent thing and it's going to give them the best outcome. So you have to do that every time. So that wasn't the big, you know, we did a good job with that. So that wasn't the issue. It was more, you know, I, I just hired Shelly about six months prior or four months prior or so. She was not, you know, she was taking, she was getting paid less than what she should have been paid uh, or could have been paid elsewhere. And then revenue, you know, just takes this big dip. We had had her like, uh, you know, kind of the one year target for what she would be paid at the end of the first year. And I think she was kind of dejected about that, knowing that revenue was not going to hit our benchmarks that we had set. I was dejected because all of a sudden, you know, I was taking no money out of the business and it was just, you know, it, there were no, and there were no new clients coming aboard. It was, you know, 2020 just from a business standpoint was a challenge. You know, it's, it's like, ah, I, you know, I would have done this differently. I would have done that differently. And you, and you don't see the end of the tunnel. You know, it's, it's easy to get kind of pessimistic and be like, oh my gosh, are we ever going to grow again? Like, do these marketing channels even work anymore? You know, you're always second guessing yourself. And it was a lot of, you know, a lot of sleepless nights. And Shelly even said to me, she's like, oh, well, if you don't, you know, you know, you don't have to pay me right now. If you don't, you know, I was like, no, of course I'm going to pay you. But, you know, I'm the one that has to, you know, take the hit that just shows you the type of person she is. It was, yeah, it was hard. Uh, And there was a lot, you know, a lot of stuff like that. And on top of all the business challenges, you have to be there for your clients and you have to be proactive and you have to uh, be that rock for them while you're also dealing with all the challenges that come with the business. And so like, what would you have done differently? I mean, you said you were all these things that, you know, you, you were second guessing and wish maybe you had done differently. Like, are there actually things you would have done differently now, looking back at, at what happened in 2020? Not in hindsight, no. Hindsight's 2020. I would have told myself, "Hey, buck it up! Like you're gonna, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna double in, in size over the next 12 months. You know, don't worry about it." Uh, obviously, 
that's the way things turned out. I didn't know that at the time it was going to happen. But, you know, at the time it was, well, my plan when I, when I let go of my first CSA, my plan was, you know, I hadn't grown as much as I thought I would after hiring her. Plan was to, you know, build up a nice cash reserve, really just focus on the current clients I had and, you know, do the work myself, just kind of work a little bit more myself and not hire someone immediately. Well, it turned out I got introduced to Shelly, who is just a phenomenal person and who was the type of person that you just want to, you know, you just hire, you just, you know, whatever you do, you make it work. Right. And so at the time, you know, obviously I'm like, oh man, the timing was so bad with that, but you know, you got to, you got to take it on the chin to, to get the right people. And I'm, you know, absolutely have no regrets about that, but I wouldn't, I'm not going to lie. You know, at that time it would have, it was like, man, I really, you know, it would have been nice to just kind of be by myself and have, you know, build up some cash so that, you know, things don't feel so on the brink, you know, maybe I was, I was just being a little hard on myself, I think. So anything else now that you would like go back and tell you from a couple of years ago when you were launching, like, just what do you know now you wish you could communicate back to yourself when you were making the decision to split off from Joe and hang your own shingle? Ooh. I mean, obviously when you start out, you take on a lot of clients that you shouldn't, or you're, you're, you know, you have a scarcity mindset. You take on anybody that with, with a pulse, I probably would have niched down a little earlier. You know, I'd have been more selective about who I was going to work with. Cause you know, now we have a, we have a great business now, but you know, if you want to really run the business well, you have to have a certain type of client. They can't be too different from each other. Otherwise, you're just dealing with all these different planning areas that you can't possibly have expertise in, uh, in all of them. So I would have been a little bit more focused on who I was, who I was going to work with. I mean, other than that, everything is, <laughs> everything's worked out so well, you know, way, way better than I would have ever expected. Maybe being a little bit easier on myself and having a little bit lower expectations would have been, you know, would have served me well just in terms of my own well-being at that time. But I couldn't be happier. I mean, I couldn't be happier with how things have turned out. It's it's been way better than I ever could have imagined. I am struck by that that comment of just if you if you want your advisory firm to run efficiently, you 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 need clients who aren't too different from each other. That there's so much discussion these days about how hard it is to scale advisory firms because of the the, the breadth of service work that that we have to do for clients. And you know, I, I'm just struck. Uh, a lot of the challenges we have in in scaling up advice firms, like it's not because clients have such a breadth of demands. It's because we choose to take on clients who have such a breadth of demands and that that's a, a decision or an outcome of the decision to not get clear on our ideal clients or a niche or a focus or a specialization or whatever it is. Like just the the firms that I see that have some of the best efficiencies have what I call very repeatable expertise. Like they got awesome at a thing and they just track clients who want that thing, which means they get a premium rate and it doesn't actually take as much time to do because it's their expertise. They don't, they don't have to look up and research a whole bunch of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's, you know, you can't be an expert on everything. You know, I think we've done it reasonably well. I mean, there's obviously things we would have done differently with some clients that we've taken on, but at this point I'm very comfortable when somebody comes to us and it's, you know, an area that I'm just not that specialized in, I easily will refer people to, to, I mean, we refer a lot of people to other advisors and I wish I would have done that a bit more earlier, but, you know, I still think, you know, now a lot of our clients are similar to each other. You know, you gotta, you know, we've, we've done fee raises, we've done, you know, we've parted ways with some clients, you know, I've probably been more ruthless than other advisors have been or other advisors are comfortable being just to get the business in a good place. 
but you know, it, it's all very challenging stuff and you got to really talk yourself into it and have some accountability because otherwise you just will make the, you know, take the easy road and you'll have a business that's kind of a mess. I want to say, I mean, just how, how do you get yourself to doing that? Like it's, it's one thing to say, I'm going to, I'm going to refer out more prospects and raise my fees and, and make all these changes. You know, we can certainly make the case about why they're good on paper. That's totally different than actually seeing across from a client you've been working for for a long time and telling them you're raising their fees significantly and that they may no longer be a fit for the firm. So like, how, how do you actually get over the hump to do that? Well, I, I did the Limitless Advisor program a few years ago, and that was really helpful, you know, and just kind of gaining the confidence to one, be able to communicate those things that are right, the right thing for the business. It, it may, you know, it may feel like just a tough thing to do, but you, know, you got other advisors around you who are doing all the same things and making these drastic changes in their business so that they can, you know, live the life they want, but also have the service model that they, that their clients deserve. I was fortunate to go through the program kind of, you know, as a more, more of a nascent firm, there's other people there where it's like, Hey, they've been doing this for 30 years and it's kind of a mess. You know, they've been taken on like a CPA refers them a, you know, $30,000 SEP contribution person. And they've got like that, you know, they've got that on the books and that's it for this client. And, you know, they've got 400 of those, you know, it's, it's a much, you know, I, I was able to kind of avoid some of those compounding errors in terms of running the business by getting into some coaching programs early and kind of doing things what, you know, the right way and correcting errors relatively quickly. So having that accountability, I think super important, but also having, you know, templates, templates for people who've done this before, you know, what's the messaging? How do you communicate that? Those are very valuable. I mean, the, I think the limitless program was 12 grand at the time, but I mean, you make one, I did fee raise that year that more than covered yeah. that, you know? And so it's like, <laughs> I had some clients that I undercharged, you know, I was desperate for their business and I gave them a discount. And, you know, later I had to have this conversation with them saying, Hey, you know, I gave you a discount. I shouldn't have done that. Now I got employees. I got to, you know, it made, it made it very easy to do it too. After the pandemic, when, you know, I needed to pay Shelly more and I was staring down the, the barrel of this decision that I made a while ago that was not optimal. And if I just corrected that, it would take care of some of that, you know, take care of, uh, you know, getting, getting her some more income. So, you know, it becomes easier when you can tie it to things like that. So what advice would you give younger or newer advisors looking to come into the industry and start a firm today? Well, starting a firm, I mean, on some of the XY forums in the, the Facebook group, actually, so a lot of people who are not a part of the network yet, they ask, you know, how do you know if you can start, you know, if you should start a firm? And most people, I would say, you know, don't do it. You know, most people, if you can find a good work situation like I had, then that's really valuable. You know, I'm just kind of a psycho when it comes to, you know, jumping, jumping ship from something like that. But a lot of people start their own firms because they can't find a situation like that, you know? And so they kind of make that decision because wherever they want to live, there's not really a firm that does that type of thing. And it's a challenge, you know, it's, it's not easy to do it. And you have to be willing to wear a bunch of hats. You have to be willing to develop yourself in areas that you're very weak in that, you know, you need to, to grow the business. And so for the people who actually do want that, cause they don't want to suffer down the you know dark wilderness road of launching a firm as, as you did, like, how do you find those jobs? Yeah, it's, it's tough. I mean, the, there's, there's always good firms hiring, I think, you know, on the, on the FPA career board or a CFP career, you know, career board, you know, I think Napa has one. So there, there's a lot of firms that, that are hiring and growing. It's not always easy to find them though, unfortunately. I mean, you know, I wish our profession had a lot better opportunities for people looking to get in, but it seems that it's sort of a, people have to sort of snake their way into finding it. And I, I had to do that myself 
and maybe it's gotten a little bit better now, but you know, I think like new planner recruiting is a great person. I always refer people to new planner recruiting who want to get into the profession. So fortunately we do have things like that now, but it's not, you know, we're still a pretty young profession, I would say. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, you know, just one of the themes that always comes up is the, the word success means very different things to different people. And so you, you've got this firm on a, a wonderful path to success. You're, you're, you're crossing, well, you were crossing $100 million in, in less than five years and, and now even higher and faster with the merger. So you know, the, the business is certainly in a good place by any objective standard. But how do you define success for yourself at this point? Well, I said in that tweet storm, you know, about just some of the joys of being a CFP at the very end, you know, it's such a rewarding profession where you can make a really good income, you can have autonomy, you're doing incredibly meaningful work for people that you care about. You know, as from a job standpoint, I feel like I could, you know, I don't know that any other achievement that I have would be helping other people, you know, kind of be successful in their own right, career-wise, you know, in terms of people we hire, helping them become successful and maybe even ultimately partners in our firm. You know, but, but family-wise, I mean, gosh, you know, relationship, it's all about relationships. So even the partnership that I'm in, we get along well. It, it feels good to have a partner that I get along well with and that we enjoy each other. You know, having a solid marriage, being there for your kids, you know, not, not spending a ton of time away from them is important to me. And so I, I feel, you know, I feel like I'm in such a good place. I'm so thankful and grateful for everybody that's kind of helped me get to where I am now. And I, I, yeah, I feel, I feel like in a lot of ways I've, I have all I need at this point. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Kyle, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.